Persecution is nothing new for the Christian church. Paul was no stranger to persecution. Everywhere he went, Paul met opposition. And the section that we're going to read today was no different. Acts chapter 14, 19 through 28. Just a little bit of background. Paul's in the city of Lystra. He's just performed an incredible miracle on a crippled man. They begin to worship him, calling him Hermes, calling Barnabas Zeus. Paul rushes out into the crowd, rips his garment and says, I'm just a man just like you. And he scarcely restrained them from sacrificing And then a group from Antioch, Iconium, come and they persuade Paul to be stoned by the multitudes. And that's where we're picking up. Then the Jews from Antioch and the Iconium came there to Lystra. Having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. However, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and notice this. He went into the city. The next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. And when they had preached the gospel in that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, where he'd just been stoned, to Iconium and to Antioch, where people came and kicked him out of their cities. And he came and he strengthened the souls of the disciples exhorted them to continue in the faith and saying, we must. There is no other way. That little Greek word, must, it's the same word where Jesus used it, where he said, you must be born again. Suffering and persecution is not an option for the believer in Christ. We must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. So when he appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, They commended them to the Lord in whom they believed. And after they passed through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia. Now when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Attilia. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work which they had completed. And when they had come and they gathered to church together, they reported all that God had done with them, how he opened the door of faith to the Gentiles, So they stayed there a long time with the disciples. Let's just ask the Lord to bless His passage this morning, bless the preaching, bless our listening and our application to the Word. Father, God, we understand this morning that You have a program and You have a plan to build Your people and to build Your church. God, that's been since the existence of the New Testament even to this very day, and God, we are following in the footsteps, and we want to follow this biblical pattern. Lord, I pray today that you will help me to explain this passage in a way that people can take and apply it to their lives. Father, I pray, God, that we would be a blessing to one another, that we as a church, as a body of believers, that, God, that we would strengthen one another, that we would encourage each other, that, God, that we would come alongside of one another so that we would continue in the faith, that, God, that we would have no casualties 
God, that we would seek out the faint-hearted. God, we would comfort those who are downcast. God, we would be patient with all men, as it says in 1 Thessalonians 5.14. Father, we pray this for your glory. We pray this for your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. I think we have some workers to... uh, uh, help with our children this morning. So if our children want to go back for that children's time, they're welcome to do that. First of all, I want you to know that I broke one of my cardinal rules and I had a cup of tea this morning. Shame on me. And so I have got my words all twisted around. And so if things come out backwards or come out sideways this morning, You can blame it on that little bit of caffeine. It doesn't take much to get my old ticker out of whack. And I took the tea and I poured it for my wife a cup. I took that thing and I mean, I squoshed it really good, make sure I get everything out. And so I thought, I'll just have a little bit of flavor. So I put it in and some honey. And sure enough, I am palpitating all over the place. So I broke one of my own rules. So if Pastor Patrick is scatterbrained. I'm blaming it on caffeine this morning. Uh, well, as I looked at this passage, I tried to boil it down to one central thought. And one thing that, that kept occurring to me was that Paul wanted to ensure that after he left that what he started would continue. That's the way I want to live my life. I know there's some educators out here this morning. That's the way you want to live your life. You want to invest your life into students so that what you do has lasting results beyond you. Tracy and I spent 10 years in Ireland as church planters, as missionaries, trying to start evangelical Bible-believing churches. And my greatest joy is when I get a phone call from an Irish believer who is still walking with Jesus Christ, and not only walking with Jesus Christ, but is witnessing to other Irish people. I want my life to have a lasting legacy far after I'm dead and gone. Tracy and I were walking on a trail yesterday, and she said something about me being an old man. And she's right. Three score and ten, it says in the book of Psalms. I'm almost there. That's scary. Brother Ron, you've hit it, and I pray that God gives you many, many more, Ron. But three score and ten, and if by reason of strength we get four score, 80 years, Dennis is nodding his head. There's some other gray hair out here. Brother Ron, you're one year older than me. (laughs) But Ron, you and I, and all of us, we understand the brevity of life. And we want something to go beyond our life. Each one of us is a parent. We want our children to carry on in the faith. We want to leave a legacy. We want to leave something lasting. And Paul has a simple plan here. And I think that plan is effective for you and I if we will follow this simple blueprint. We're looking at these shoe boxes right here. 
And you know what? Every one of us can be a part of something so simple. We watched last Sunday as young children opened these shoe boxes all over the world. And I believe it was in India where they were at. And the man stood up and he says, there are seven churches now established and planted because of the shoebox ministry. There's three things in this passage that I see that will help us have a lasting legacy. Three simple things. One, live your life understanding that God has a divine calling on you. God has a divine calling for each one of us, not just the Apostle Paul, not just for Barnabas. God has a divine calling, and whatever ministry and whatever work you're into, God has called you into it. The book of Ephesians says, walk worthy of the one who has called you into this ministry with with humility and lowliness of mind, esteeming others better than yourself. So all of us have been called into a ministry. God has given us a divine calling. I've got a son who's a nurse, but his divine calling is to be God's representative at that nursing facility. He's on the Weber Cross Country team, but his divine calling isn't to run the race. It's to run the race of faith. That is a divine calling. And I know in his heart, he wants to leave a legacy, a spiritual legacy behind him. After five years of running at Weber, he wants people to know that he followed Jesus Christ and he wants to see his fellow teammates come to faith in Christ. The second thing in order to leave a legacy is you've got to have some kind of biblical strategy. And Paul had a biblical strategy. He had a purpose for why he went to those cities And it wasn't until that purpose was completed or he sent somebody back to complete that purpose did he commend those churches unto the Lord and said, you know what, it's done, and I'm able to leave you now in the hands of God. The third thing that Paul did is he left all the results into the hands of God. It was God who opened the door. It was God who granted repentance and faith to the Gentiles. And Paul recognized that. Jesus had a clear purpose in choosing 12 men. One of them we know was a devil to betray him. And even in the selection of Judas, God had a purpose and a plan beyond the disciples themselves. Jesus says this in John chapter 15. He says, you have not chosen me. Now, this is talking about an election to service, not salvation. You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. He has selected those 12 men purposely for a reason. And then he goes on to tell that reason, that you should go forth and bring fruit. I'm choosing you. I'm giving you a calling, a divine purpose, and that purpose is to multiply to take the gospel and to take it to the ends of the earth. And then he says this, and that your fruit should remain. Paul does the same thing in this passage, doesn't he? He exhorted them to remain, the same Greek word, to abide, to stay steadfast in the faith. Jesus calls the twelve. He says, I selected you. I want your fruit. I want you to be fruitful. I want your fruit to remain. Then he reminds them, that a servant is not above his master. 
If they have persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. Jesus in Mark's Gospel, in chapter 3, He went up into the mountain. He spent the entire night in prayer because He was about ready to select the twelve. We're told this in Mark 3.13, Jesus called whom He Himself wanted, and He had a purpose. He had a plan. He had a strategy. He gave them a divine calling, and then He tells them what the strategy is. The strategy is simple, that they might be with Him. There is no shortcut to the Christian growth, is there? God has called us and chosen us so that we might be with Him. But it's not just so that we can sit and soak the love of Christ. That's wonderful, and I love doing that. I love going out on my back deck. I love sitting in my lawn chair. I love going up in the mountains and just being with Jesus. But that's not where it ends. They might be with Him, and here's the next purpose, so that He might send them to preach and to give them authority to cast out demons in His name. He wanted the gospel to be spread. Throughout the entire New Testament, we see clearly that God has a method for leaving a spiritual legacy. This is through the establishment of local churches in an area. And in this Harrisonville, this is where God has called you and I. And this is where we can have the greatest impact for His kingdom is through North Valley Bible Church. That doesn't mean that I shouldn't get on an airplane and witness to that person next to me. It doesn't mean that I shouldn't witness whenever I have an opportunity. I may never see that person again. But the greatest impact that I can have, the greatest impact that any of us can have, is through the local assembly. And this is God's plan. But take that into your own life. And I just want you to understand that we need to have a divine calling from God because things are going to get rough in the Christian life. I'm going to probably shouldn't do this, but maybe I well, Dr. Goers, I couldn't help but think about you as I was preparing this sermon. She's saying, oh, no. But I, I, I had the privilege of working with her for two years. And because I was her, the Bible teacher for the school, her and I would often have spiritual conversations about what was going on with the school because the school was under incessant attack by the enemy. There was one thing that Dr. Goers clung to, and that was the fact that she knew that God had called her to that ministry. I'm sure there was a lot of times she would have just liked us to walked away and just shut the doors and said, you know what, enough is enough. But that's true for every single one of us. If we are intent on doing something significant and leaving a lasting legacy for the kingdom of God, I guarantee you, you will find opposition. The enemy does not like it when we have come to seek the welfare of the children. That's all the way from Nehemiah until present day 2020. And Paul had a divine calling on his life. How in the world did this man continue to go and preach from city to city to city after what happened to him? There was no doubt in his mind that God had called him to do what he was doing. The same is true for you this morning. You want to leave a lasting legacy? Live your life knowing that God has given you a purpose 
and that God has given you a calling. When Paul was saved, Ananias was to go and lay his hands on him. He says, no way, I know about this guy. And this is what God told Ananias. He is a chosen vessel of mine. He is going to bear my name to the Gentiles. He's going to bear my name before kings and before the children of Israel. And I will show him how many things he's going to suffer for my name. That's what kept Paul going. That's what kept him pressing on toward the mark. That's what gave him the ability to forget those things behind and reach forth to the things that are before and lay hold of the prize that was set before him because he knew that God had called him. In Acts chapter 13, as they were ministering and fasting to the Lord, the Holy Spirit spoke to that assembly and said, Separate unto me Paul and Barnabas for the work whereunto I have called them. Paul knew that he was called by a divine appointment of God. Well, Paul and Barnabas took another young man with them. His name was John Mark. John Mark didn't hold up on the journey. And I have to think it may have been because John Mark didn't feel called by God to go. In fact, the next time when they get ready to take the second missionary journey, Barnabas says, let's take John Mark again with us. And Paul said, no, I will not take him because he departed from the work. Paul was only going to take people that he knew that had a divine calling and those were the people that he was going to yoke up with because Paul wanted to have a lasting legacy. We, having a calling, we must be more committed than our opposition. Our opposition, they are devoted to destroying what God is doing. In fact, they succeeded in closing down the charter school. But Dr. Goers and some of Dr. Goers' friends, you know what? They are more intent and more committed to students than the opposition is. And today we have a co-op of about 30 kids who come into this building and come into this room over here. And three days a week, I open up the Word of God and I teach the Bible to, a public, to, to homeschool kids. Because why? Because we have to be more committed than the opposition. It doesn't take much to discourage most people, does it? It doesn't take just a little bit of flack and a little bit of, of tough uh, things going against you, and, and boy, we're ready to, to quit and, and ready to throw in the towel. And the enemy knows that. And the enemy in Paul's life knew it. The enemy went to great lengths to prevent a permanent impact on Asia Minor. They were doing all they could. Look at verse 19. The Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there. These people were willing to travel 70 miles on foot just to stop the advancement of the gospel. Folks, when God has called you, you need to be more committed than your opposition is. Acts chapter 13. Let's go back and look at the people of Antioch. Acts chapter 13 and verse 39 and verse 49. Acts 13, 49, it says, And when the word of the Lord was being spread throughout all the region, but the Jews stirred up devout and prominent women, and chief men of the city, and they raised persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. That wasn't enough, though. Now they follow him all the way to the city of Lystra. Let's look at the people of Iconium, Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14, verse 6. 
Let's go back to verse 5. And when a violent attempt was made by both Jews and Gentiles with their rulers to abuse and to stone them, they became aware and they fled to Lystra and to Derbe. We're picking it up now in Lystra, aren't we? In verse 19. Jews from Antioch and Iconium, they came there. And what did they do? They persuaded them to stone them. The word persuade means to induce or to win over by argumentation. Our enemy is going to be committed, and we must be more committed than the enemy because we understand that God has given us a divine call. Secondly, we don't need to look back. Jesus said this, Any man who puts his hands to the plow and begins to look back, he's not fit for the kingdom of heaven. Paul never looked back. Once we put our hands to the plow, we ought to expect opposition and even sometimes doubts. When one door went shut for Paul, he looked for another open door. After he went to Antioch, he decided to go to Iconium. After he went to Iconium, he decided to go to Lystra. After they kick him out of Lystra and stone him, what does he do the very next day? Look at verse 20. And the very next day he departed with Barnabas to Derby to preach the gospel. Don't look back. Now let's look at Paul's strategy. What was Paul's strategy so that he might have a lasting legacy? Let's look at verse 21. And when they had preached the gospel, that's part of the lasting legacy. The only thing that's eternal is the word of God and the good news. When he preached the gospel and made many disciples, what did he do? He returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. The very places that he'd been expelled, threatened to be stoned, and was stoned. Paul had a definite strategy, and he returned to those cities. He had something he needed to complete in those cities. The aim of every Christian should be that of making disciples. The aim and the goal of every Christian, not just pastors, not just professional Christian workers, every Christian should be a disciple maker, and every Christian should be being discipled. We ought to have somebody mentoring us, and there ought to be somebody that we are mentoring. The Great Commission is found in Matthew chapter 28 and verse 18. It says, go therefore and make disciples of every nation. It wasn't enough for Paul just to hand out tracts. It wasn't enough for him just to stand on the corner and from house to house and preach the gospel. He wanted to make disciples, and God has no other program. It is discipleship making that God wants us to do. In A.B. Bruce, his book, The Training of the Twelve, Jesus spent three years with 12 men because he understood that the rise or the fall, the longevity of his ministry depended on the character development of those men to succeed him. And every one of us should have that same mentality, that Christianity is either going to rise or fall on this generation and how we disciple the following generation. The aim is to make disciples. He returned to those cities. I want you to go over to Acts chapter 17. 
Acts chapter 17 and verse 13 and 14. We'll see this as a continual pattern in Paul's ministry. Acts chapter 17, verses 13 and 14. But when the Jews of Thessalonica learned that the word of God was preached by Paul at Berea, they came there also and stirred up the crowds. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul away to go to the sea. So Paul has to leave. He has to leave Thessalonica. He has to flee this place. The Jews are so intent at disturbing what he was doing. But was what was Paul going to do then? He left the city. He was only there for three weeks. In order to find out, we have to go over to the New Testament book of 1 Thessalonians. So let's just take a quick look because I want you to see what Paul did and how he felt about these believers and how committed he was to discipleship making. First Thessalonians chapter 2. We're going to read down to verse 2 of chapter 3. But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavor more eagerly to see your face with great desire. Paul is recollecting back when he was in the city of Thessalonica, he was only there for three weeks. The persecution became so severe he had to leave. They were just like the Jews at Antioch. They followed him to the next city. They stirred up trouble there. And Paul said, I've been taken away from you only in presence. I'm committed to your discipleship. I'm committed to your spiritual growth. Therefore, we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again, but Satan hindered us. The opposition is committed. They are committed. For what is our hope, our joy, our crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you? In the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at His coming, for you are our glory and joy. Now, where did Paul go when he left Berea? He went to the city of Athens. This is what he writes them. He says, therefore, when I could no longer endure it, I want to know what is happening to my disciples. I want to know what's happening to this body of believers. Paul wants to leave a lasting legacy. And he says, I couldn't take it any longer. I wanted to know what happened to my spiritual children. I'm committed to you people. I thought it good to be left in Athens alone. And I sent Timothy, our brother, the minister of God, our fellow labor in the gospel. And why did he do that? Why did he send Timothy back? It was to establish and to encourage you concerning your faith. Paul had a strategy, and that was to establish disciples in the cities that he went to. Look at verse 6. Or verse 5, for this reason, when I could no longer endure it, I sent to know your faith as some means the tempter had come and tempted you, and our labor might be in vain. The last thing that Paul wanted was his labor to be in vain. He wanted to leave a lasting legacy. Making disciples was a part of that plan. Let's go back over and we'll look at one more example. Acts chapter 18. Back to, back to Acts chapter 18, verses 17 and 18. 
This is in the city of Corinth. Then all the Greeks took Sothenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and they beat him before the judgment seat. But Gallio took no notice of these things. Look at the next verse. says It starts out with the word so, or as a result. It's a result clause because they were beating him, because they were persecuting him. What does Paul do? So Paul still remained a good while. I can't leave you people. The same thing is true at Iconium. Let's go over to Acts chapter 14. I know we're flipping around a lot this morning, but that's okay. You guys are Bible scholars. You can stay with me. Acts 14 verse 2, but the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and they poisoned their minds against the brethren. What's the word therefore? Because they were poisoning the mind of the brethren, Paul leave? No. Therefore, they stayed a long time. (laughs) Just the opposite of what you would think. They stayed a long time speaking boldly in the Lord who was bearing witness with signs and wonders. Paul was committed to making disciples. You have to excuse me just for a second. I've got a nose that's running like a faucet. I don't have COVID. I can't promise that, but I don't think I do. It's cold weather, and this is what happens to me all winter long. All right. Paul, not only part of his strategy was to make disciples, another part of his strategy was to prepare disciples for perseverance. It's not how you start the race, it's how you finish it. I identify with one of the greatest missionaries, not because I'm a great missionary. His name was William Carey. I couldn't hold a candle to William Carey. William Carey went to India for 40 years without a furlough. Lost his wife, lost a child, and lost 18 manuscripts that he had translated the Bible into various dialects. The building where he had it stored, the enemy came and they torched the place and all of his work went up in flames. He started all over again. And today there is a remnant of the church that William Carey started. William Carey saw over 800 souls come to Christ in India and he thought he was a failure. But in William Carey's journal, he wrote this. He said, I may not run, but I can plod. You know what? I hope that at the end of my life, people can look back and say, Patrick was a good plodder. He wasn't much of a runner, but that man could plod. He could just keep going. Well, Paul wanted to prepare his followers to persevere. Let's go to verse 22 and see what he does to make sure that you and I and that believers are going to persevere. Acts 14, 22. He returned back to those cities where he had just been kicked out of, Iconium, Antioch, Lystra. And what did he do? He did three things. He strengthened the souls of the disciples. Secondly, he exhorted them to continue in the faith, telling them that we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God 
And the third thing that he did, verse 23, he appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting. Then they commended them to the Lord in whom they believed. The only verb in that passage in the Greek language is the verb they commended them to the Lord. All the rest of them are Greek participles. He commended them to the Lord, but he did three things before he did that. Until he had done those things, he's not going to say, hands off. Until you're developed, until you're where you need to be, then I'm going to commend you to the Lord. He didn't go out early. He didn't vacate them when they needed him the most. He went back to them when, he need, when they needed him. He strengthened, he exhorted, and he appointed leadership. Strengthening the souls of the disciples. What does it mean to strengthen a soul? Well, the Greek word means, in the original language, has the idea to reestablish. He had just left those cities. They had just given persecution. They wondered what's happening to Paul. They had just seen their pastor being stoned, drug out of the city. So he went back and he reestablished them. He says, guys, things are going to be okay. So he reestablished the souls. He made sure that they were secure and firm in their faith. This word to strengthen is only used four times in the entire New Testament. And every time that's used is in the book of Acts. Luke, the author of the book of Acts, uses this word. It's episterizo. It's a compound word to mean to make strong and to re-strengthen it. If that's good English, I don't know. But let's look at the four occurrences and we'll see how it's found in the context of local churches in all four of them. So this is the first reference. The next reference is in Acts chapter 15 where they took letters from the Jerusalem council and they read those letters, and when they read those letters, they strengthened or re-established the church in sound doctrine. They were being taught that you had to follow the, the, the laws of Judaism, that you had to do circumcision, that you had to keep the law of Moses, and the church was being confused and miscombobulated. I'm making up all kinds of words this morning. But anyway, he went back and he re-established them, strengthened them with this letter. So the next time is Acts chapter 15, verse 32. Let's read verse 31 as well. And when they read that letter, they rejoiced over its encouragement. Now Judas and Silas, themselves being prophets, also exhorted, and here it is, they strengthened the brethren with many words went back and re-established those churches with good, sound doctrine. The next time it's used is in Acts chapter 15 again. And this is when Paul goes back. This is his second missionary journey. I hope you're following me. We're in his first missionary journey in chapter 14. Chapter 15, we pick up his second journey. And where does he go? He goes to those same churches that he started in Asia Minor. Verse 40, but Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended to the brethren of the grace of God, and he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Paul had a strategy, didn't he? He wanted to make disciples, but he also wanted to prepare disciples to persevere. He strengthened them. That's the third time. Let's go to the fourth time that this, this word is used in the New Testament. And that's found in Acts chapter 18, 22 and 23. 
This is Paul's third missionary journey. And when he landed at Caesarea, that's along the coast, they'd gone up and greeted the church. He went down to Antioch. Antioch was his home church where he was left for all of his missionary journeys. And after he had spent some time there, he departed and went out through the regions of Galatia and Phrygia in order, strengthening all the disciples. Paul wanted to reestablish the churches so that they would stick to sound doctrine. The next thing that he did is he continued, he exhorted them to continue in the faith. Let's go back over to chapter 14, verse 22. The second participle we find is that he exhorted them to continue in the faith. 1 John says it like this, I have no greater joy than knowing that my children are continually walking in truth. He exhorted them to continue in the faith. The faith there has the direct article. So the faith that he's talking about is the Christian body of truth to continue in it. Paul had a system that he went through every church in the Ephesian church. We're, going to, we're not going to look at it, but in, 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 in Acts chapter 18, he calls the Ephesian elders together, and this is what he said. He said, I kept back nothing that was profitable to you. I gave you the hard teachings of Christ, and I gave you the easy teachings of Christ. I told you everything. In fact, he says, I declared to you the whole counsel of God. He didn't soft soap it. He didn't water it down. He gave them everything that he needed. And then he told these people, I want to exhort you to continue in the faith. You think about where these people are coming from. They're coming from a pagan background. They're living in cities where persecution is real. They've just, some of them, probably some of them in their own families, have got believers and unbelievers, and they know what it's like to go back home where I've got people that don't like what I believe and are going to persecute me. And so Paul exhorts them to continue in the faith. I think this is one of the most needed ministries in the body of Christ. We see people come and sit on a church pew. We see people come to our fellowship. We see people come to our meeting, and then we don't see them. And you know what? We forget about them. We need to encourage people to continue in the faith. Pick up a phone. Send a text message. Go and visit somebody. We need to encourage one another. Paul said this in 1 Thessalonians. Comfort the downhearted. Encourage the weak. Be patient with all men. Oh, what a great need. And Paul recognizes that. To encourage in the faith. Trials are a part of our Christian walk. We are not saved to be healthy. We're not saved to be rich. We're not saved to be prosperous. We must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. And we do a disservice to people when we tell them a gospel that doesn't include persecution. Jesus said like this, he says, unless you count the costs, you're not worthy to be my disciple. If you don't love your or hate your own life, you're not worthy to be my disciple. If you don't even hate your family and your own kindred, you are not worthy to be my disciple. Now, Jesus isn't implying that we should hate anybody, 
But what he's implying is that our love for him should exceed everything. And unless we have counted the cost, we're not one of his disciples. He gave two parables. He says, no one sits down and builds a house without first counting the costs. Less halfway he gets through it and he's not able to build the house. He says, no one enters into an agreement with an army that's approaching him unless he figures out how many people he can uh, repel that army or otherwise he asks for uh, or, uh, conditions of peace. In the same way, unless you count the cost, you cannot be my follower. And so we do a disservice to people when we tell them that God has a beautiful plan for your life, just ask Jesus into your heart and everything's going to be rosy and merry. It couldn't be farther from the truth. We must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. In John chapter 16, Jesus made no bones about it. He said, these things I've spoken to you, that you will not, so that you will not be caused to stumble, to offend, to be scandalized, is the Greek word. They will put you out of the synagogue. Yes, the time will come that whoever kills you will actually think they're doing God a service. This they will do because they have not known the Father nor me. But these things I have told you when the time shall come, you will remember that I told them to you. I think those cities of Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, when things got hard, when things started really going bad, you know what they said? Paul told us this was going to happen. We must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. I wonder how people do at old smiley man's church. I won't even say his name. But when he's telling people that God wants you to be healthy, God wants you to be rich, when you go to the doctor and you get a diagnosis you don't like, wait a minute, this isn't what I signed up for. This isn't the Jesus that I'm supposed to be following. I gave my tithe and my offering, and that pastor so-and-so said, if I gave that seed money, I was going to get rich. How come he's the only one getting richer? It doesn't fly, does it? You can only peddle that kind of gospel in America. You can't peddle that gospel in India. You can't peddle that gospel in China. You can't peddle that gospel in Vietnam or in North Korea. We, too, must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. Paul told Timothy, you have carefully followed my faith, also my persecutions and my afflictions. They happened to me at Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. He's writing and remembering all these things in the book of Acts, writing to Timothy years later. He says, I want you to remember that. You know what's happened to me. And then he says, yea, all that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. First Peter chapter 4 and verse 12 says this, don't think it strange, the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice in so much that you are partakers of Christ's suffering. Christ has left us an example that we should follow in his steps. Remember what Jesus says to his disciple, a, ma a servant is not greater than his master. We by no means should be thinking that we are exempt from persecution. If they hated our master, they're going to hate us. And Paul wants to prepare them so that they will persevere. The last thing that Paul did in his strategy is he ensured that there was accountability in the local church. And he did that by the establishment of leadership, godly leadership, so that there would be accountability in the church. Verse 23. So when they had appointed elders in every church with prayer and fasting, they commended them 
to the Lord. Godly leadership was, in, was absolutely necessary so that there would be a development and accountability in the body of Christ. We don't have time this morning to explore it all, but I'm just going to make sort of a paraphrase of, Acts, of Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and following. It says that when Christ ascended into heaven, he took captivity captive and he gave spiritual gifts to men. Those spiritual gifts are prophets, teachers, evangelists, pastors and teachers. And the reason he gave them to the church was to equip saints. That's you and I. We are saints this morning. To equip us to do works of ministry till we all come into the unity of the faith into, the net, into a perfect man, to the measure and the stature of the fullness of Christ, whereby every joint and every ligament does its part to the increase of the body in love. That's probably a butcher of Ephesians chapter 4, 11 through 15. But anyway, you get my point. Paul entrusted leaders to the church. He called the elders of Ephesus together. And he says, I want you to shepherd the flock of God. I want you to protect them. I want you to watch over them. I want you to feed them. Because I know that ravages wolves are going to come in after my departure, and they're not going to spare the flock. Remember, by three years, I did not cease to warn you with tears. And now he says this. He says, now I will see your face no more. So I commend you to God and to the word of his grace which is able to make you strong and give you an inheritance among those who are sanctified. What a beautiful legacy Paul was able to leave. I would have no greater joy than to see someone come to Christ and for that person then to go on and exceed me. That One of the greatest compliments I ever got was a young man that I discipled uh, at the, the first church I pastored. was in Rome, Georgia. And he went on to seminary, where I went to seminary in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And the professor called me. And that was the greatest compliment I ever got. And he says, Patrick, he says, I don't know what you did with this young man, but he's twice the student that you were. <laughs> but that wasn't the greatest compliment I ever heard. I, I didn't impress my professors, apparently. But this young guy that I spent time with in the dorm room at Barry College used to run the trails with him at Barry College and have him come into our house and Tracy would fix biscuits for him. That's probably why he went on so good was my wife's cooking. But anyway, the professor called me. He says, I don't know what you did with this guy, but he's twice the student that you were. That's what Paul said. He said, I am able to commend you now to the word of his grace and to God because God is enough. And that's my last point this morning. We should leave all the results ultimately in God's hands. The last part of this passage that we're going to look at this morning is verse 26 through 28. From there they sailed to Antioch. This is not the Antioch of Pisidia. This is the Antioch in Syria where Paul had been commended to the grace of God for the work which he had completed. He left a legacy. And this is what he said. Now, when they had come, they gathered the church together and they reported all that God had done with them and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. So they stayed a long time with the disciples. 
It is God and His Word. We are merely the instruments. It is God who opens the doors. It's God's Holy Spirit that convicts people of the sin and the righteousness of God and His judgment to come. And ultimately, it is God the Holy Spirit who converts anyone. By commending people to God, Paul was acknowledging the total sufficiency of Christ. It's not you. It's not me. It is the total sufficiency of Jesus. When people find Christ, they are complete in Him. And we commend people to Christ, not to man-made followers. And that's what Paul did. He says, I'm going to leave your maturity and your ultimate development in the hands of Christ and in the word of His grace. It was God who opened the door of faith. And it was God who was with Him the whole way. So this morning, as we conclude this teaching, I want to encourage you to live life with purpose. And that purpose is to leave a spiritual legacy after you're gone. How do we do that? Live your life as if God has given you a divine calling to take his message to lost people and then to disciple people. Have a strategy for discipling people. Encourage people. Strengthen people. Be accountable to a local church. Lastly, leave all the results in God's hands and you can live a life that's going to leave a lasting legacy after you're gone.